to lift heavy weights. This thing is actually quite heavy. Thank you, Nick. Um, title of the sermon, Conquering and Confident. Conquering and Confident. While some of you are writing that down, I want to give you a brief correction on our timeline. I, I was off a week, so you're going to have to wait, uh, next week being December 23rd, you're going to have to wait for the third sermon on the relationship between the church and Israel uh, till 2019. Sorry. And, and as I was working through chapter 7, I might do two more sermons on chapter 7, in addition to that one, for maybe a total of three, but we'll see. There's just so much here, which we won't hardly scratch the surface of. Today is December 16th. Yesterday was December 15th, 67 years ago in the year 1951. This building and property was formally dedicated to the Lord for use for the advancement of the gospel across the island of Maui, 67 years ago. And it was purchased with funds from the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, for those of you who don't know that. And so I want to encourage you and challenge you as you give, uh, not only now, but just anytime you ever give or you do work for the Lord, we're so tempted to look at the immediate uh, cause and effect, and it can feel like there's very little at times, right? Oh, okay, I just, I gave whatever I gave to Lottie Moon, and oh, okay, that didn't sound or feel super spiritual, or groundbreaking, and yet here we are 67 years later, countless people have heard the gospel, countless people have been called out of darkness into light and are now with the Lord Jesus himself, many of them, and we are still here advancing the work of the mission. So take the long view to the work of God in your life and the lives of those around you. Don't judge it by what you see in the immediate context. Take the long view. Sometimes decades. If you're just joining us for the first time, and some of you are, uh, we have been in the book of Revelation. Now, I just, there's just no way for me to just bring you up to speed on everything we've gone through from chapters 1 to 7 in a nutshell. There's just, it's impossible. So, uh, if you're just joining us, uh, I, I want to try and let me just summarize it the way many have to give you a handle on the book and the approach we're taking. Some approaches, the most popular approaches today to the book of Revelation and the study of the end times view the, the book as a whole like a puzzle book. Like a, like a puzzle book. It's a puzzle. And so you read the Revelation of John in one hand and world news in the other hand and try and piece together where we are. And so you spend a lot of time with Jerusalem news and worrying about Syria and Iraq and Russia and what's going on in the Middle East and the mark of the beast and ooh, is the technology developed now for the mark? And, and, and so that's, that's one approach that views it like a puzzle. I want to try and piece the end together and this tells me how to do it. Another approach takes the book like a picture book. Uh, so, not so not so much a, a puzzle, but a picture, uh, a very vivid picture of God's working in history until the time of Christ comes to give you hope, 
to give you boldness to challenge you and warn you against the dangers of compromising with idolatry and the world and on and on. And so if you missed it, we're taking more of the picture book approach than the puzzle book approach to the book of Revelation. One of the things we've been doing as well is playing a game. We've been playing a game, haven't we? We're playing what approach are we taking? There's four approaches to this, even with it being a picture book or puzzle book. Four, I'm going to confuse you even more. Four approaches to the book. I'm not going to get into the details now. Um, but instead of telling you the approach we're taking, I am just working through the text, through the Bible, trying to be faithful to the text, presenting arguments and evidence for, for what I'm saying from it, and letting you try and discern what position we are taking. That's been fun. Most of you are still off. Now, I think it's important now to let you know why are we playing that game. You should know me enough by now to know I am very intentional in what I do. I'm not interested in playing games for the sake of playing games. I'm actually, at the same time, forming something in you that is very important. Very important. What I'm doing is I am building an interpretive grid in you, in your mind, so that you can weigh not only the teaching I'm giving you, but any teaching you ever hear for the rest of your life on the book of Revelation. Now, why am I doing that? I could have not explained any of the approaches. I could have not uh, done any of those things, given you the background, the, the historical context. I could just come in and say, this is Revelation, this is what it means, this is what it applies, and gone that road, and just given you the one, never even talk about the others. But then what happened, long after I'm gone, is somebody else will inevitably teach you about Revelation, or you'll hear some teaching on Revelation, or you'll hear some radio show, or something on the way to work that'll say something about Revelation, unless you like constantly refer to your notes, wait, 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 which you probably won't. It can be confusing, and you can piecemeal things, and it can be confusing. So what I'm trying to do is, is at the same time with this game, build an interpretive grid so that anytime you hear anything on the book of Revelation, you can understand where it's coming from, have an appreciation for whatever is said, and then apply it accordingly and work with it accordingly. So you can say, oh, they're saying this thing about the Antichrist and the mark of the beast in Syria. That comes from a futurist understanding of the book of Revelation. They're likely dispensational. That makes perfect sense. Oh, these guys are talking about fish in the Dead Sea and why it's so important, why we should drop everything and learn about fish in the Dead Sea. That's coming from this particular type of understanding of Revelation. Makes perfect sense. You see. And so that's what I hope to do in you. Just know we're not just playing games, but we'll continue with our game. And hopefully you're getting more and more clarity as we progress. Where are we now? Chapter 6. Most immediately, we're in chapter 7. In chapter 6, we saw the seven-sealed scroll written on both sides and the Lamb beginning to break each seal. And with each seal, we saw something happening. The first four were horsemen, and then we saw the fifth seal was martyrs under the throne, and the sixth seal brought us to the end of the world, the day of the Lord, the wrath of the Lamb, and the people are crying out, unbelievers, for the mountains and rocks to fall on us. Who can hide us? Where can we go? Who can stand? 
before the wrath of the Lamb. And so chapter 6 ends with that question, who can stand on the last day with these judgments? Can anybody, anybody stand under the judgment of God? Chapter 7 is a type of interlude that aims to answer that question. So chapter 6 ends with the question. Chapter 7 now is an interlude to answer that question. It's a type of flashback. The first half kind of flashes back to the beginning of the seal's breaking. The last half flashes forward to the very end. To the very end. Looks ahead to the future. We saw the sealing of God in chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. The servants of God sealed 144,000. And the picture, if we could summarize it from last week, is that God will preserve and protect his people from all his judgments. God will preserve and protect his people from all his judgments. Now this seal in chapter 7 only goes on the 144,000. That's what the text says. Everybody ever, anybody ever heard of the 144,000 in here? Everybody. Anybody not heard of 144,000, that number? Never heard of 144,000 and how it pertains to Revelation? I think I saw a six-year-old raise his hand. Cool. Good. Which means a lot of you have heard it. So we all know about it. So the text says 144,000 are sealed. I suggested last week that this is not a group of ethnic Israelites, but rather it is a symbolic way of referring to the church. And so today, we're going to see what all that's about. I'm going to give you a heads up. Last week was a little heady. This week will be, again, a little heady, but it's also very important for us setting our trajectory on understanding this book. All right, so let's pray and get at it. Father in heaven, there are great truths in here for us today if we will labor to see them. There are great truths in all of your words. At times they are mysterious and hard to understand. Would you grant us by your spirit and for your glory that understanding this morning? May the truth of your word reverberate in our hearts and may it compel us to turn from our sin. May it cause us to hate any remnants of sin in our life. And may it drive us to this lamb who is also a shepherd who will protect us, who will wipe away every tear from our eye. And may we leave this morning, all of us, proclaiming like this great multitude, salvation belongs to God. And Lord, if there are any here who don't know you, may you stir them this morning as they hear your word preached and your name proclaimed. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Here's the big idea. Here's the big idea, all right? And it is big. God grants the church a glimpse of the present and the future. God grants the church a glimpse of the present and the future in order to remind believers of their present mission and assure them of their future victory. He gives us a glimpse of the here and the now and of the then and the later to Assure us, ultimately, 
of the final victorious measure of our mission. And that's where we're going to go. So number one, I have two points. Number one, the church militant, verses 4 to 8. The church militant, verses 4 to 8. And then the church triumphant, verses 9 through the rest of the chapter. And so I said last week, and so here's what we're going to aim to answer. Who are the 144,000? Who are the 144,000? And what is their relationship to the great multitude, if any? Who are the 144,000? And what is their relationship to the great multitude? Now, one view, and many hold this view, think the church is raptured prior to the great tribulation, the secret rapture of the church. Many of you have heard about that. And they would argue that that happened after chapter 3 of Revelation. So that all of this from chapter 4-1 onward is in the future, that the saints are in heaven with the Lord or in a temporal state prior to his second returning. They would say that during the seven-year tribulation, after the church is gone, that there is a remnant of 144,000 ethnic Jews, and that these Jewish converts will then be sealed with the mark of God and go on to evangelize and have the most successful evangelistic campaign in the history of the world. They'll go on to evangelize this great multitude during the time of the tribulation that consists of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and that those Gentile converts will be martyred in the tribulation and come out, and we see that picture of them on the other side of this passage. That's a very popular understanding. I'm suggesting that that understanding is incorrect. I'm putting my cards on the table, okay? I'm suggesting that is incorrect. I'm going to suggest that this is not an ethnic Jewish remnant. I'm going to argue that this is a symbolic number representing the entire community of the redeemed the church. Now, why would I say that? Why would I say that? I mean, doesn't the plain, natural reading of this text and literal sense of it support the conclusion that this is 144,000 ethnic Jews? Why go through all the trouble to say 144,000, 12,000 from the tribe of blank, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of, right? Why go through all of that? Isn't this the plain, natural reading of the text. How could I say it's anything else? I'm going to give you eight reasons. I could give you 12, but I'm going to stop at eight. I'm going to give you eight reasons. Seventh, seven reasons will be in this point. The eighth one will be in point number two, the church triumphant. I'm going to give you eight reasons why it is not ethnic Jews. Some of these reasons will necessarily be breaking down that view. The other reasons will be building up what I'm going to say they are. So here we go. Number one, reason number one. This is a apocalyptic literature. This is apocalyptic literature. In my sermon on Revelation 1 verses 1 through 3 entitled Take and Read. So if you're here and you didn't hear that, uh, go back. It's on our website, callhalloweebaptist.com. Check out that sermon. I gave five features of apocalyptic literature, all of them present in the book of Revelation, along with other biblical examples from the book of Daniel of what John is doing here in this passage. 
This is apocalyptic literature, and we have to remember today in 2018, how many of you have ever read apocalyptic, Jewish apocalyptic literature? I don't mean zombies. That's what we normally think of apocalyptic literature. Anybody ever read Jewish apocalyptic literature? Yeah, we don't have much of it. We don't really have a genre like it in our culture, but it was in abundance in John's. Apocalyptic literature, by definition, is highly symbolic. And John tells us in Revelation 1.1, the first word of Revelation, apocalypsis. He tells us in that verse and following that he's going to be communicating to us in symbolic language. He tells us. And so we are literally, if I'm going to be literal, we are literally told in the beginning of Revelation by John that he's going to communicate with us symbolically. So it's a mistake to take the literal number and it would be inconsistent with the genre of writing to take it at face value. It is a symbol, just like it's a mistake to take a satirical news headline literally. And in that sermon, I think uh, I read a, 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 a satirical news site, Babylon B. Anybody ever heard of them? Babylon B, yeah, they do. They're like a Christian satire site. They have funny things. Uh, they are not meant to be taken seriously. It, it came out with the headline, doTERRA, specializing in a new brand of high-end motor oils, right? And you're like, wait, doTERRA? Is doTERRA the essential oils coming out with motor oil? No, it's, it's a satire site. But to take it literally would be to ignore the genre of writing, of literature, and I'm arguing that Revelation, the book of Revelation, being apocalyptic literature, it is a mistake to look at the numbers and to not see the symbolism as primary. The, we could say the genre dictates the interpretive approach. So that's the first reason. Remembering the type of literature we're reading is highly symbolic by definition. Number two. The sealing, if we read chapter 7, verse 3, the sealing of God is for the servants of God. Chapter 7, verse 3, what does it say? He tells the angels not to harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants, there's that phrase, the servants of our God on their forehead. And then he's referring to the 144,000. Other usages of my servant or the servants of God in Revelation, we have it pop up four more times. One, chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 2, 19, verse 5, and 22, verse 3, where God refers to his servants. My bad, that's 2.20, not 2.2. Where God refers to his servants, it always includes Jews and Gentile reference. Never does it only refer to ethnic Jews. So when he says, my servant, in every other use of that phrase in the book of Revelation, it always refers to the totality of God's people, not just ethnic Jews. And I would argue the same usage is consistent here in chapter 7. Reason number three. The parallel with the mark of the beast in chapter 13. In chapter 13, we see the beast marks all of his servants, not some of them. The converse is also true. God marks all of his servants. 
The image of sealing in chapter 7 goes back to Ezekiel chapter 9, and that further bolsters this. In Ezekiel chapter 9, when God seals his people, you only have two groups, not three. You have those who are faithful to God and those who are not, those who are in idolatry. I'm going to add a ninth reason here between reason 3 and 4. Understanding this literally, 144,000 ethnic Jews, ethnic tribes of Israel would also dictate a consistent use of that literalism. And we must also believe that God is going to revive Old Testament enemies in the book of Revelation. So when he says Gog and Magog and Egypt and Babylon, we also must see that God is going to revive these Old Testament enemies. But if he's doing something else, if he's using a symbol, these Old Testament enemies of God's people to stand for something, that would be a different story, wouldn't it? But if, we're, if we take this at face value, that God is going to revive ethnic Jews, the ethnic people of God, then we also, when we see the enemies of God, have to say he's going to revive Old Testament enemies of God, Gog, Magog, all these types of things. I would say it's symbolism, symbolic. He's using pictures that the people are familiar with to help them understand the world they are in. So that's reason number four, but that makes this one number five, but it's number four in my notes. So I'm going to go back to using my notes, and if your numbers are thrown off, understand it's because I threw the numbers off, but I'm going to use the ones in my notes so I don't get confused, all right? Confused yet? Cool. Reason number four. The parallel with the 144,000 in chapter 14 would point us to understand, again, that this is symbolic not to be taken literally. Let's read chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, flip over a few pages, and I am going to click over a few pages. Revelation 14, we see this number, 144,000, appear Again, verse 1, chapter 14. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. That's the ceiling referred to in chapter 7. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of a harpist playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders No one could learn the song, here it is, except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. That's an important phrase, who had been redeemed from the earth. It is those who have not defiled themselves with women. That's also important, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed, here's another one, redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. What does that tell us? In verse 3 and 4, it says they are redeemed and purchased from the earth and from mankind. There is a parallel with chapter 5, verse 9, where the Lamb is said to have redeemed, same language, people from every tribe, tongue, people, and language. That parallel of those two verses, here it is. You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed. Same Greek word as this one, redeemed. People for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. People from mankind, from the earth. This parallel would also indicate this is not literally to be taken as ethnic Jews. Another sub-point under this one. 
if it's literally ethnic Jews, there was a description in there, wasn't there? We have to take that literally as well, that these are celibate Jewish men. 14 verse 4, this is what he says, It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Close quote. Sorry, ladies. Sorry, married people. Or Jewish people. Jewish ladies and married Jewish people. If you're married or if you're a female Jew, there's no hope of you being sealed in the Great Tribulation. Too bad. If we take it literally, we have to also literally understand it to be 144,000 ethnic Jewish unmarried males. Again, this is another indicator that this is not to be taken literally. The symbolism points to their moral purity and holiness, as do the many other calls in Revelation. It points to their moral purity and holiness, not their marital status. Not their marital status. Reason number five, which will be your reason number six now since I added one. The actual list of tribes is very unique. If you were to search the scriptures and find, you would find about 20 plus uh, lists of the tribes of Israel or of the sons of Israel. You would find about 20 of them or so in their entirety. This one is very different from any of them. It's unique. There's no single overlap. There's a lot of conjecture as to why that is. A few of the things that come up out of this is they're out of birth order. The firstborn son of Israel is Reuben, not Judah. But Judah's listed first, and then Reuben. If you read the book of Genesis, you'll know why. Because Reuben slept with his father's wife, and he lost, therefore, his status as firstborn. So, and Simeon and Levi murdered a whole tribe of people. Very vicious, brutal stuff. And therefore, they lost that, and it went to the fourthborn, Judah. So Judah's listed first. And then Reuben. And then the sons of the concubines are listed, not Simeon and Levi. Before the sons of the wives. We see Dan and Ephraim are omitted, but Levi and Joseph are included. Now, some of you are like, I have no clue what any of this means or why it matters. If some of you are familiar with that storyline, and you know it is very, very odd to include Levi in a list. It's very, very unique to include Joseph in a list of the 12 tribes of Israel. Why? Because Joseph, his sons, Nasa and Ephraim, were placed in his stead to receive his inheritance for the tribes. So it's very unique to see the tribe of Joseph listed while Dan and Ephraim are omitted. Why are they omitted? Again, the storyline of the Old Testament helps us. Dan and Ephraim were like two peas in a pod for idolatry. They were very idolatrous. They led Israel in their idolatry. Now, in a letter where John is aligning himself like Daniel of old to his people in exile, calling them to covenant faithfulness, to 
to pure devotion to the Most High God, where he's trying to encourage his people, don't compromise your faith in an idolatrous society, it is very understandable that he would omit Dan and Ephraim, who were leaders of, the, of idolatry in the people of God. So are we to conclude from this list, literally, that Dan and Ephraim's descendants are not going to be sealed in the Great Tribulation because of something their ancestors did more than 2,500 years ago? You see the, the issues with this? There are many more. Or is this list trying to depict something more? Something more symbolic? And I think it is. Number six, what is it trying to depict? So this would be the positive reasons now as to why I would not take it literally because of the meaning that that's trying to be conveyed. The symbolism of the number of 144,000 is meant to evoke the complete people of God, a multitude. Twelve, we saw there's a number of revelation, uh, numbers in Revelation that are meant to be taken symbolically. Four, God's complete creation. Seven, God's number of perfection or of completion, the seven letters, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, the, seven, uh, the, the scroll sealed with the seven seals, the complete plan of God for judgment and redemption. Twelve is one of those numbers as well. Twelve is often referred to, used to refer to the complete people of God. At the end of Revelation, Revelation chapter 21, specifically 12 and 14, verses 12 and verse 14, we find in the New Jerusalem that there are 12 gates. 12 gates in the New Jerusalem. Whose names do you think are inscribed on those 12 gates? The name of each tribe of Israel. There's a wall with foundations. There's 12 names on those foundations. 12 foundations, a name on each one. What are those, what are those names inscribed on those foundations, do you think? It's the 12 apostles the complete people of God from the Old Testament and the New Testament throughout all time. It was no accident that Jesus came on the scene and he chose how many disciples or apostles? Twelve. That wasn't a random number. The people there would have thought, who is this guy I think he is? Jacob? The new Israel? Building a new people of God? We'll talk about that in 2019. Twelve, the Old Testament people of God, complete people of God. Twelve, the New Testament, the complete people of God throughout all time. Here we have 144,000. I'm going to ask you to do math. Who likes math? Who doesn't like math? Maybe I should ask the negative. There we go. Who doesn't? Yeah, a lot of people. What is, here we go, it's hard math. What happens when you get... 12 times 12. Oh, you guys are good, see? Not bad. 12 times 12 gives you 144. What's the number we have here? 144 what? Well, 12 times 12 doesn't equal 144,000, Pastor. It only equals 144. What happens when you multiply 144 times the largest Roman singular, Roman numeral referent, they had available at the time, which is, what is the largest singular Roman numeral? A thousand. What, what letter represents that? Anybody know? 
M. M. You guys don't know your Roman numerals? Come on. No, no, I'm just kidding. M. M is the largest singular Roman numeral they had available at the time. So what happens when you take 144,000 and you want to multiply it by the largest multiplier you can that you have available? What number would you multiply it by? A thousand. And you would get 144,000, you see? It is a symbolic way to say a huge multitude consisting of all of the people of God from the Old Testament and the New Testament sealed and secured from the judgments of God. But I haven't answered everything, have I? Not even close. Because he says 144,000, but pastor, why would he go on if this is symbolic to say 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the, right? Why would he go on and do all of that if he meant it like that? Reason number seven. The styling of 12,000 from the tribe of blank, 12,000 from the tribe of blank. If you know your Old Testament would recall something crystal clear to you. When you see that number, whatever, fill in the blank number with from the tribe of blank, from the tribe of blank, your mind would go back to where all of our Bible reading stops. In the new, and whenever we do our New Year Bible reading plan, we get to these sections and we're just like, I have no clue what this is about. Skip. <laughs> That's what we do, we do. But if you read it, you would know this is a census calling soldiers to arms. Numbers chapter 1 and following will give you a census, a roll call of people ready, men ready for battle. The purpose of the census in the book of Numbers was to organize a military force to conquer the promised land, wasn't it? So one pastor said this, I quote, The church is thus depicted in military terms as a remnant called out of the world to do battle for God, close quote. That's the picture here. The people of God called out of the world to do battle for God. So what John sees, what does he see? What John sees is the church in her present status, what we call the church militant, saved sealed and sent by the one with all authority in heaven and on earth to do battle at the end of the age, ready to engage the forces of darkness with the power of the gospel and see many souls rescued from sin and despair. This is the church militant. Seven reasons. Eight, if I add that one. Number two, the church triumphant. I'm going to argue that this is symbolism based off the way John writes and has already shown us how he writes. So John hears a number, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of God. He hears it, all right? So I want you to picture that. He hears, I heard their number. And check out verse 9, chapter 7. After this, I what? After this, I looked, and behold, 
a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. What are they doing? Remember the, the last question of chapter 6? Who can stand and what are they doing? Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. I heard, what? 144,000. And I looked, and behold, what? A great multitude. The picture, the vision, is interpreting the hearing, what he heard. John's already done this, hasn't he, in Revelation, hasn't he? He's already done this. He's done this twice already. He did it in chapter 1. He heard Jesus, and then he looked, and he sees one like the Son of Man, and he sees his vision, doesn't he? And in chapter 5, he was weeping and crying and crying, and he heard somebody say, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has what? Has conquered. Behold, the lion of the tribe. He hears somebody say, Look, there's a lion. And then he sees what? A lamb standing as though it had been slain. You see? The vision is interpreting what he heard. He heard 144,000 ethnic Jews sealed. He looks and sees a multitude, a multi-ethnic multitude standing, crying out with the singular message, salvation belongs to our God. This is what answers the question, who can stand? This is the answer. Those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, they and they alone will stand on that great day. So John sees the state, two states of the church. He sees the church militant on earth, called, organized, ready to do battle. And he sees the end of the age on the other side of the tribulation when victory is complete. He sees the church triumphant, singing complete praise to God and to the Lamb. That's what's happening here. Oh man, I just wish we had time to survey the New Testament and let you see how much this is all depicted in the letters, in the epistles, the people of God called to do battle in the truth and power of the gospel. I wish we had time. God is a king. Jesus was born king of the Jews, wasn't he? Did he ever cease being king? Are we awaiting him to come back and return his, and establish his kingdom? Yes, in a sense. But no, he has never stopped reigning, has he? He reigns over all things right now. His reign will never end. It won't last a thousand years only. It will last for eternity. He was born king, and he remains king. So let's apply it, because we don't have time to do that New Testament survey. That's going to happen 2019. Let's apply this. What does this mean? A few takeaways. If the church is an army, right? The church militants, which means you're here and you're in an army. Did you know that? 
When you follow Jesus, you enlisted in the army of God. Not just the men. That includes you too, ladies. So you're a part of an army. So if we are an army, if the church is an army, then we should do a few things. We should identify the enemy properly and accurately, shouldn't we? It's helpful in a war to know who you're fighting. And we don't exactly have uniforms that you can see with your eyes. If the church is an army, we should identify the enemy properly. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 and 12, Paul says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I want you to think about something. Think about your week, starting from last Sunday. Who were you tempted to be angry at or irritable with this past week? Who were you tempted to be angry at or irritable with this past week? Think about it. You're like, everybody? <laughs> Good. Keep that in your mind. Let me ask you another question. Who have you been nursing bitterness toward or a grudge at? Somebody that when you see them, you just, you know you shouldn't have ill will or bad thoughts about them, but you just do. You're nursing bitterness or holding a grudge. Let me tell you this, they are not your enemy. If we are an army, we should identify the enemy accurately, and it is not them. The person that you're tempted to be angry at or irritable with, or that you are nursing bitterness toward, they, whoever they are, is not your enemy. They are your mission. It is your mission to move toward them in the name of Christ for the glory of God and with the power of the gospel and all the wisdom associated with that. Identify the enemy accurately. We could spend all day on that one, but let's move on. Actually, let's flush it out a little bit more. Just kidding. If you have directed your anger toward a brother or sister in Christ, then you have fallen for a scheme of the devil. If you have directed that anger or irritability toward a brother or sister in Christ, then you have fallen for a scheme of the devil. Let us identify the enemy properly. It isn't your spouse. It isn't your friend. It isn't your children. It isn't your boss. And it isn't your pastor or your church leaders. They are not your enemy. We also must recognize there is an enemy outside of us who only has power in our lives because of the enemy within us. Doesn't he? Let's not give Satan all the credit for our mess-ups. Realize if we took Satan out of the world right now, he, he didn't exist, 
we just took him out, you would still sin. You would still sin. Too many people blame everything on the devil when they really need to kind of look in the mirror. Amen? You would still sin because of your own need to renew your mind in accordance with the word of God. So we have enemies outside of us. Our greatest enemy is often the one right in here. My heart wanders. Identify the enemy properly. Number two, if the church is an army, we should be prepared to fight. Not with physical weapons, of course. Not with physical weapons. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. Hear that again. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, which means this army has munitions. And the munitions of the church are the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God and the Gospel of Christ. Which is the weapon is the Word. Amen? That is our weapon. We don't wage physical jihad. We have spiritual weapons that destroy strongholds. One of the methods of use is to take every thought captive to Christ. That's one of the ways we use that weapon, is to use the Word of God to renew our mind, and that looks like taking every thought captive for obedience to Christ. Let's flesh that out. When you're tempted to think poorly of another believer, you must take that thought captive to obey Christ. We could just say anybody in general, not just believers, but I'm applying it within the context of the people of God, right? When you are tempted to think poorly of another believer, you must take that thought captive to obey Christ. I am absolutely amazed many times and blown away at how quick believers are to jump to conclusions, to negative conclusions about the thoughts, intentions, motives of other believers. It's almost like we immediately assume nefarious intentions about others rather than assuming loving thoughts or the best thoughts or understanding I might be mistaken or I might not have all the facts or the details. We constantly jump to negative conclusions about others in our mind, don't we? Only to find many times that they were entirely wrong and the reality was much, much simpler true story. I was an intern at a church in Midland, Texas. There was four of us, four interns in total. And one Saturday, we were all pretty close, one Saturday I sat at home all day waiting for them to call. What are we going to do today for fun or whatever to hang out? Nobody called. Come lunchtime, no call. This is abnormal, by the way. Come one o'clock, two o'clock, no call. Three o'clock, four o'clock, five o'clock, no call. You know what I started to think? Like, those guys are all hanging out without me. They're all having a good time without me. They didn't even call me. They must have thought, man, I must have done something here. They must think this or think that. 
about this past week, and they're all hanging out and didn't even invite me. I had this whole narrative in my brain of, of them just hanging out without me, and then I'm going to see them in church tomorrow and be like, what'd you do last night? Oh, we went out and did this and this and this. You know what happened the next day? Went to church, saw them. We're all kind of come together at the same time, sheepishly. So what'd you do last night? Nothing. What'd you do last night? Nothing. What'd you do last night? I didn't do anything. I stayed home all day waiting for you guys to call me. Me too, the other one says. We had all literally... And they all thought the same thing, that we were all there. We thought you were hanging out without me. I thought you did that. And they're all thinking, and we're all like, this is so ridiculous. We all literally sat at home instead of somebody picking up the phone and calling to arrange something, thinking everybody was doing something without the other one. Do we not do this so often, beloved? It's sinful. It is. I was sinning against them. I wasn't believing the best about them. I wasn't thinking on truth. I was thinking on assumptions. We do this. When you are tempted to think negatively or poorly, you are taken, you must take those thoughts captive to obedience to Christ. When you are tempted to complain about your lot in life, or grumble, you have a thought in your mind that you must take captive to obey Christ. When you are tempted to fear and anxiety, you must take those thoughts captive to Christ. When you are tempted to lust about somebody in your mind, you must take that thought captive for obedience to Christ. When you are tempted with anger towards your spouse or wrath, towards your children. You have thoughts in your brain, feelings running rampant that must be taken captive to obey Christ. And this is one of the chief ways we wage warfare and remain focused on the real mission. It's using these spiritual weapons. Rather being distracted by the schemes of the devil, we fight for unity and focus on the gospel mission. Moving on, if the church is an army, we should prepare to suffer. If the church is an army, we should prepare to suffer. It means we're going to be doing battle. When you're fighting with somebody, you don't stop and say, Ooh, you hit me. I can't believe he hit me. I know a lot of you don't fight. I don't fight a lot either, but I've had to at various times. It's the nature of warfare. I wish we could tease this out. The church is an army. We should be prepared to suffer. Next one, because I do want, I'm going to skip that and go to this. If the church is triumphant, this is important. If the church is triumphant, then we should be confident in our efforts. We fight from a place of victory, not for it. We're not fighting for victory that is ours. We're fighting from it. Amen. This changes everything, doesn't it? Beloved, when you see this vision of the multitude, it should embolden you to proclaim the gospel to unbelievers. Why? Because it is assurance that when you proclaim the gospel, people will be saved. 
This is the way the scriptures often encourage our efforts. Listen to this one from Acts 18. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, verse 8, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in the vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. Here it is. For I have many in this city who are my people. As a result, he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. You see, God gave him a vision. I have many people in Corinth before any of them had been saved. And so Paul stayed. He dug in. And guess what happened? Many were saved. Beloved, look around at your coworkers, family, friends. And know this, that all your efforts to share the gospel with them will not be wasted. They will not fall on deaf ears. They will yield fruit in the lives of the people you share with, even if you never live to see it. The church will triumph. And the end result is that there will be an innumerable multitude around the throne standing singing praises to God. And so let me ask you this question. It's very important. Will you be in that multitude? Will you? Have you bowed the knee to Christ? Is he your Lord and King and Savior? Today, the invitation stands if you will turn to him and follow him. This multitude, again, we don't have time to get into this. I'm closing. They have a message that they sing and proclaim with great conviction, don't they? They have a singular message. What is that message? Salvation belongs to God. And beloved, that is our message this morning. Let's sing it and let's praise God. Let us pray. Father in heaven.